we need to understand what we're doing internally. Like, how are we treating each other? How are we ensuring that the practices within our organization are equitable? Um, how are we making sure that we are elevating the voices of the leaders in the organization who look like the students we serve? Mm -hmm. How are we ensuring we're being inclusive? And I think one of the questions mm -hmm. I asked in my first 90 days was, you know, y'all, are we doing this work to a community, for a community, or with a community? Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of the Start It Up podcast, Crucial Conversations. Today, we're excited that we have a very special guest. Adiola Whitney is our guest, and she, uh, in that Venn diagram of educator and leader and entrepreneur, she's right there in that Venn diagram. So, Adiola, yes. thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Don and Jamal. I'm so excited to be here. Yes. So kudos uh, to uh, your agent for, for reaching out. And she was like, hey, this is Adiola and this is what she's been working on. And both Jamal and I are like, yes, absolutely. Because we, we took a look at the bio, sent a video, all this other really cool stuff. Um, so let's jump right into it. Yeah. Uh, tell us about reading partners um, and, and, then, and then we'll go from there. Sure. So we are, Reading Partners is a national nonprofit. Uh, we focus on early literacy. And the way we do that work is that we mobilize community volunteers across the country to provide thousands of students K through four in under-resourced elementary schools with proven one-on-one -on -one literacy support to help them read at grade level. So we work with children who are anywhere from a half a grade level behind in reading all the way to nearly two years behind in grade um, in school. And uh, pre-COVID, we had a very much kind of bricks and mortar uh, reading center located in each of the schools that we're in. And if you imagine it, both of you are educators, so you know, you know, you know, the size of um, of a of an elementary school library. So think that, and then think about a third of that size, a bit more colorful, a lot more little tables, and at each table there is a child and there is a tutor. Um, and that tutor is working specifically on um, a very prescriptive lesson plan that we've devised for each child based on the assessments um, that they do uh, for us to really understand exactly where the reading skill gaps are. And so they're reading with them, the room is really colorful, they get to take a book home. There's a lot of social and emotional learning happening with just building their confidence, giving them high fives. So it is. it looks like a library, but a rather lively one. However, it's about the size of a classroom. So that's the way, that's the, that's the way rather um, our program looked pre-COVID. Wow, that, that sounds amazing. What, what inspired you to begin that work? Yeah, so I would, so if I had on a collar, I would pop my collar, Jamal, but I don't have on a collar. <laughs> um, but, you know, I didn't start Reading Partners. So Reading Partners was started almost 20, about 21 years ago uh, mm -hmm. in the South Bay uh, by three women. Um, who were in like the Menlo Park area um, and noticed that children in a particular elementary school in Menlo Park were really struggling with reading. And they just volunteered and went there every day and read with the students and over time developed a curriculum, got experts to help support that. We became a 501c3. They then later hired their first executive director um, thanks to some great funding uh, from some really big funders, social innovation funding, 
as well as uh, the Edna, Edna McConnell-Clark Foundation, we were given millions of dollars to expand nationally. And around that time, we um, had a randomized controlled trial and like some research done by folks like MDRC to right. show that the, the work that we were doing is proven and effective and that we helped children make statistically significant changes in their in their reading. And so the idea of you know, partnering with other schools just really became attractive. So um, that was about 21 years ago. I initially came into the organization in 2013, mm -hmm. um, helping to oversee at that time, I think there were about like nine or 10 regions, um, a region essentially just like a geographic area where we we're partnered with schools in that community. So like a city. Um, so there were about nine or 10 of them, and I oversaw about half of them in 2013. And by uh, 2014, I then oversaw all of them and then got an opportunity to hire other staff. So I was here from 2013 to 2016 and then left, and then I just came back. So I was hired during COVID in, um, in the summer and came back in October as CEO. So I would love, I wish it were my idea. It wasn't. Um, <laughs> but the but they incredible women. But they brought you back to take on among the biggest challenges. So, what is a nice formerly Midwestern girl like you trying <laughs> to like get come back in this? Yeah, that's yeah, a. Yeah. I mean, obviously, your work in the past speaks for itself because they wouldn't have asked you to come on with such a task. But um, what was your? I mean, obviously, you're attracted to a challenge. Um, yeah. But what's the first thing you rolled up your sleeves and got to work on in the new COVID era? Yeah, well, since you brought up that I'm a Midwesterner like you, Don, I, I hope you don't mind if I maybe rewind just a little bit. I mean, the reason I've dedicated that, unlike both of you who are like experts in education and high school and, you know, in public education, I've never been a teacher. I don't have a master's degree. But every single job I've had since the late 90s has been in education. And um, all of that is because, you know, I see education or educational inequity as a social justice issue. I was raised by two Nigerian parents, immigrants. My father was um, the city editor of the only black newspaper in Columbus, Ohio. And, um, you know, I learned about social justice before I knew what social justice was. And, you know, there was an incident when I was 12 years old in Columbus, Ohio, at the Eastland Mall. Um, I was going uh, back to school shopping with my parents in August of the year. I don't remember what year, probably like the late 80s. And um, I saw these two white mall security security officers throw down this black pregnant woman, like visibly pregnant. And I have three kids. So like she was probably nine months, like really about to pop, throw her down on the ground. My father like sprung into action, ran back towards her. They were throwing these racial epithets, assumed she was her boyfriend, her husband. Long story short, you know, she wasn't arrested. She didn't steal anything. I think they thought she stole something. She didn't. That's still not a reason to throw a woman on her, on her belly, right? So um, the police were called, she was let go, my father was let go the next day on the front page of the Column Post newspaper that my father was the city editor for was this story. And the NAACP ended up boycotting um, all of the JCPenney's for like a year because of that incident. And so, you know, I just, I grew up, you know, young black girl, a Nigerian, um, in, you know, born and raised in Columbus, Ohio. 
And I just never saw anything like that. And all I knew about race was like Martin Luther King, Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, what I read in books, but did not know that, you know, didn't know that social justice was still an issue and that, you know, race was still an issue for people who look like me. And what, what I remember about that moment wasn't as much about the race as, as much as it was, my father did not know this woman, but it didn't matter. But he saw the humanity in her and realized he needed to do something. And that for me was formidable. And it shaped who I became. It, it shaped what I majored in in English. I was in English and African, I read I majored in in college. I ended up being an English and African-American studies major. I volunteered in, in elementary schools from the time I was 14, um, you know, back in Columbus. And like, I was just always trying to find ways to give back. And that's just how I was raised. That's what my parents said, charity begins at home. Like there's just, you just need to, we are put on this earth to make the world better and to be nice to people and to be kind and show that kindness. And, you know, I think without really knowing at that time, I think subconsciously, that incident triggered for me this need to want to make the world a better place. And that, I mean, and essentially that's why I came back to Reading Partners. Like, you know, I've, I've spent since 2009 in nonprofit education, but prior to that, I worked for companies like McGraw-Hill and Kaplan running education centers and working with statewide school districts um, to really help them with assessments and reporting. And so I knew, I mean, I feel like this was my calling. I knew I was going to be a CEO of a nonprofit one day. I think the timing was all right. We were in the middle of two pandemics, the, the global um, you know, pandemic of COVID-19. And I think also just the racial reckoning that this country was experienced. And I think for the first time we were all still, it was nothing different than what has been happening in the US. But I think for the first time we weren't, you know, commuting back and forth to work. We weren't going to pick up our kids or taking them you know, to different activities. We were all still. And so I think as scary as it was, I had made the decision in January of last year that I wanted to be a CEO and that this was my time. And I told you know, the last organization I was in, you know, I'm, I'm gonna be gone in about a year. Um, and fast forward, COVID happened and I was like, ooh, maybe I'm not gonna interview for anything right now. Um, and then George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, of course not in that order. And I was like, no, this is my time. I think this country needs more people who look like me um, at the helm of organizations ultimately that serve 90% black and brown kids like Reading Partners. I think there is a place for me here. And so I interviewed for Reading Partners. I also interviewed for a number of other organizations and hearing that Reading Partners at this time started talking about educational inequity and really thinking about what is it that we, like, what is our role? We're not, here teaching kids how to read simply because, you know, we all love reading. It, while that is true, um, there are injustices that have been created and, you know, in this country, unfortunately. And, you know, there's a reason that, you know, that 79% of fourth graders um, from disadvantaged communities aren't reading at grade level. I mean, I think that statistic tells us everything we need to know. So, I went off, I detoured about 10 or 11 times in my story, but I hope that answered that first part of your question. And then what did I feel like I needed to do? The organization had already pivoted before I came on board to an online model because of COVID. So I didn't do that. That was not my genius. That was my extraordinary leadership team and the rest of the leadership at, uh, um, here at Reading Partners. But I knew that there was a lot that I wanted to do to fully understand our culture, to really understand you know, what people in the organization thought our role was to really help literacy, help, you know, help close this achievement gap and to do so in a way where we're not the panacea, but that we're, you know, our job is to partner 
with incredible schools, partner with great leaders like both of you, but partner with school leaders who are already doing this work on a daily basis. Okay, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna take a <laughs> bit of my, of my water. I've said a lot, but please oh, let me know if I didn't answer your questions. You are on fire um, and you do need some water. Um, I, I, I definitely, I, I connected with what you said about, we're, we're not just teaching kids to read just because we love to read. That's, that's a part of it. So the question I have for you is, given the, the social construct of America, Mm-hmm. How has how has the the energy of your organization pivoted to make an impact for students of color or to to change their minds and and th- their way of operation? That is such 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 a great question, Jamal. You know, when I think about so within our organization, we call this work ready work. I know some people call it DEI, DNI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. We call it race, equity, diversity, and inclusion, and you know, I think it was popular in May and June of 2020 to, you know, put a very prolific statement on your website and denounce hate and talk about um, racism and all of those things. But let's be honest. I think I think we've all seen companies, nonprofits, for profits, um, be somewhat performative, right? Like put put like big bold statements and not be able to back it up. So as someone interviewing for Reading Partners, I saw the big, bold statement and I was like, okay, well, clearly in my interview process, in my vetting, re-vetting of Reading Partners, I need to understand how are we actually living into this? So we've done many things. We're we're so far from where we need to be, but I'm so proud of the progress that my organization has made. So first and foremost, we devised a really diverse group of leaders in the organization to be part of what we call a ready committee. And that team works alongside me, my chief of staff and other executive team members within the organization to really understand before we talk about what we're gonna do with a community, we need to understand what we're doing internally. Like how are we treating each other? How are we ensuring that the practices within our organization are equitable? Um, How are we making sure that we are elevating the voices of the leaders in the organization who look like the students we serve? Mm -hmm. How are we ensuring we're being inclusive? And I think one of the questions Mm -hmm. I asked in my first 90 days was, you know, y'all, are we doing this work to a community, for a community, or with a community? Mm. And of course, you know, I want that answer to be with, but I'll be, I've worked for a lot of nonprofits. And I think far too often as nonprofits, we think we have the answer and we go in and we, you know, we go into that quote unquote under-resourced school and tell them how they need to be doing this, that, and the other thing. And that's, that's not true partnership. That's not true inclusion. And that I feel like assumes we have all the answers and we don't like we are the partners of school leaders. Um, and our, our job is to understand, you know, tell us how, you know, COVID is impacting your school. Tell us how, you know, literacy, you know, what, what, how, how your school is prioritizing literacy and what are the impacts on social and emotional learning and what role do you see organizations like Reading Partners playing? And that, like, that's the conversation we, in the discourse we should be having and that we are beginning to have with our partners. But I'll be honest, I don't think we always were. And it's not to point the finger at anybody. It's just me being, you know, brutally honest. Like we just, we weren't always having that conversation. And I think at times we thought we had the answer. And then I think also what we've realized is like, so much of our work isn't just with the school and the teachers and the principals, because they're the ones who refer the students to us, but it's also with the families. 
you know, as a, as a mm-hmm. mother, I have three kids. My middle son is going to be 14 on Friday. And when I first came to Reading Partners, he hated reading. He hated it, y'all. Mm-hmm. He was in first grade. He struggled. I told the school, like, get, can you please test him? Like, test him. Like, get the, the child preacher's kid theory like, right there. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were like, no, Ms. Whitney, he doesn't need to be tested. And I was like, look, he hates reading. We're doing everything we did with his older brother. It's not. They're like, look, every child learns differently. My whole point is just that that same conversation my husband and I were having and, you know, wanting to figure out what we needed to do, what we did wrong is the same conversation families that of the kids we are serving are having, right? And so for us to dismiss that or to not involve them in how we do this work, and I'm not, and we're not perfect. We're not doing it in mm-hmm. all the ways yet, but so I'm speaking somewhat aspirationally. Mm-hmm. I think we recognize we have to. And COVID-19 has certainly taught us that. I mean, it's got, like we had the rude awakening. Now that we are literally, figuratively invited into the homes of our families by way of Zoom, um, we, you know, we, we now have a relationship with our families in a way we didn't because the work we did before was during the day and most of the parents and grandparents and families were working. So they weren't in the school and, you know, and while they may have known their kid was in reading partners, like we didn't do a great job of connecting. So I think, I think it's like that type of work that we have to do. And then of course, looking at our policies, looking at our tutors, mm-hmm. the majority of our tutors are not the same race as the kids that we serve. The majority of our tutors are white. They're not mm-hmm. black or brown like our students. And that, and it's, I mean, I'm, I think it's important for two things. I think two things can be true. I think it is important to continue to find and mobilize volunteers that resemble the students that we serve. It's also though really important to um, mentor or rather tutor across difference. Because I think that's what, that is what keeps this world going. And I think that's what helps with empathy. And that's what helps people understand the world around them and people who are different than them. So um, I think both are important. And I think we just have a responsibility as an organization to ensure that we're not putting our students in harm's way and that we are training our tutors to Mm -hmm. understand what it means to support the students that we support. So that's just some of the ways I'm thinking about it. That is, that is, that is really, uh, impactful i think the thing that you just said that resonated with me again the most is the the family so i'm a school administrator and i understand how important family engagement is there are some people that say you know the kids come to the school and you know they're ours for eight hours and you send them back home and they belong to the parents again but we know that like if if you believe that then there's going to be a breakdown and what it is that you're able to do for those families and the energy that's missing from education is simply the, the, the family unit focusing on them. So what are, some, what are some things that you've done? And then what are some things that families can do or school administrators can do to engage their, their families if they don't have reading partners? And if they do, what, what can they do to support um, that with their families, specifically yeah. the family engagement piece? I think that's such a great question. I think first and foremost, I mean, I'm, I'll answer the question about educators, but I, I do believe you all are probably um, better suited to answer that question than I am, but I'm happy to answer that. But what I'd first start with is like, what, what I think families can do or what, what we try to do as an organization um, is not assume we know exactly what families want and recognize that there's a lot of work we need. I mean, it, just ask them, like, don't assume. So if we are designing our program, there's this, um, 
there are these design principles. I think they're called uh, equity by design. Mm -hmm. um, but these design principles that take into account equity and that and mm -hmm. there's this principle that talks about designing at the margins. Mm -hmm. and, and so like ultimately, if you're trying to do this work with a community, Doing it with them means asking them what they want. It means understanding their needs, mm. right? So um, those are some of the things we're trying to do. So we've recently done a survey just to ask parents, like we had all of these different ideas of resources we were gonna send them. And then we started asking them what they wanted and some of the resources we thought we would send. And we were like, ooh, they're gonna love this. They were like, mm -hmm. ah, I don't think so. What I need is this. So it's mm. it's our ability to listen and be responsive to that. So that's one of the things that we're doing. And then I think I think I think honestly, school leaders know this better than we do, um, because you all are with you know our students longer than we are. You all are there all day. We're there, you know, a couple hours out of a day. And so um, I think listening to kids and and I think it's important. And again, I think school leaders already know this, but I think it's important to recognize, yes, academically, you know, academic gains are important, but social and emotional um, learning is even more key because without that, it's hard for kids to learn. And so, you know, what are the ways that you are, what are the things that schools are doing with, with children during the, you know, eight to three o'clock time? And, you know, how are they helping to extend that at home? Are they sending books? at home, you know, are they sending books home with kids? Are they sharing with parents, you know, all of the successes that they're seeing with their kids and their reading? Uh, because mm -hmm. sometimes as parents at all demographics, we don't know, we just don't know how our kids are learning. I feel like we know a little bit more, you know, since they are mm -hmm. they are going to school in, in many places where we are also working, which is home. That is definitely mm -hmm. the case for my children. So I feel like I, I know I am seeing more, um, but I think what has helped me, I can speak as a parent is, having the teacher share some of those nuggets, like some of the successes, not mm -hmm. only making a phone call when, some, when, my, when my youngest is acting up, when he's not paying mm. attention, when he gets up from the computer and the teacher is like, where is he? So yes, I need to know that, but I also wanna know what's great that's happening. Mm -hmm. And I think the more that educators can do that, the better. And then I think encouraging families to, um, uh, to build, you know, a love of, of reading outside of school. So, you know, going to the library, you know, there are a lot of communities that do book drives. We try to do that in our program and try to give as many of our children books over the summer, even mm -hmm. when they're not in our program. So I think, you know, whatever they can do to team up with other organizations or, you know, if, 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 they're, if they're community leaders that come into the school and say, what can I do? How can we help? Do a book drive, you know, give our kids some books. Um, I think all of those things are important. Man, uh, I love the passion uh, in in your voice and everything you're you're going about. The one one of the things that um, that we that Jamal and I talk about, and, and really that entrepreneurial mindset, is to mm -hmm. see a problem as an opportunity. Yes. Um, and then also, yep. let me, and I'm not saying this for you because I know you know this. There, because you hit on it earlier. Mm -hmm. um, because I've, I've sometimes we get called out on it, like you know, mm -hmm. I, I like entrepreneurs, and and there is a difference between seeing as a problem as an opportunity and being opportunistic. When this yes. whole thing started, is like use promo code COVID nineteen for twenty percent <laughs> off, and things that were just pulled up as heck, right? Yeah. Like I, I I remember I'm not going to say who there was one person that had a, a free course out there on investing, and hands to God, it was use promo code September 11th. 
And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not. Right. Please. But, but, but so in saying all that, uh, and, and you already alluded to it, like a one thing. So I'm going to ask you like one more because you, you'd mentioned that, um, uh, you know, th- that all of a sudden, instead of being just in the classroom, you guys got to Zoom and be a part of the families. But other than that, mm-hmm. what has been an opportunity from the last six months? And like you said, there it was the racial tension. There yeah. was all, there was COVID. There was a lot. There was the presidential race there was so so pick i don't care what genre but what is it what has been an opportunity when it was seen as a problem that you guys have really whether it's you individually or just your organization has been able to experience because you guys have a solution and you saw it as a as a as an opportunity yeah um that is such i love that question so much don um one opportunity or one challenge that I think we saw as an opportunity would probably be we had no idea. We set goals as we do every year. But we had no idea how many kids we were going to serve this year. And in the first few months, it was significantly less students. And we, you know, we we certainly did a small pilot of our online um, curriculum, but not quite in the way that we would have done had it not been for COVID. Like we would have tested it for an entire year. We would have looked at data. We would have you know, had all these questions we would have asked. So we couldn't do that in that way. And I think as a result, there were organizations, I mean, some of my very favorite organizations, CEOs that I look up to, um, closed shop. I mean, like they literally had to close down during COVID. And not because they couldn't raise money or not because they they didn't have a great mission or they weren't doing great work, but they just couldn't figure it out, right? And I don't think that's anything about them. But the opportunity that I'd maybe talk about, like just a grand one, and I could think of many examples, but just was was COVID. Like just, there was an opportunity and I, re- I read somewhere, it was like in a... Um, in a, in a corporate like for-profit business journal or something. I, I remember reading an article about the importance of being able to pivot in this time in the, in the companies and leaders who cannot be agile and cannot do almost a little bit of prediction of like the future and be able to like change course based on their stakeholders will not make it. And so, you know, we were like, okay, we think we're going to serve this many students. We didn't know if that's how many students we were going to serve. We we very well could have said, you know what, we haven't enrolled anyone yet in this city. Let's just give up. And we said, no, like, let, okay, th- let's maybe text the families. Let's try the person who was in charge of this last year. Let's reach out to the families we served a year ago who are not technically in the program, but we think we could serve. I mean, we were pulling out all of the stops. Um, and I think it was, I think the true winner was just a, a, the mindset of being agile. Um, and I think given that there were just so many blows, like it is, it was much easier for us to pivot, to, to uh, match a tutor and a student in, you know, in our uh, reading center than it was to do so online. 
you know, you're taking some tutors who are just don't know that much about Zoom. And now we're now we have to figure out, okay, is, is the is are our AmeriCorps members and staff, are they now help desk people? Do they they now have to be experts at Zoom and they now have to walk through someone, you know, walk someone through all of this? Like there were just those type of things that we could have rested on our laurels, say, you know, let's just throw in the towel. This is not going to work. And we said no, like our kids need this and we're here for a reason and we have to figure it out. So I think it, like, I mean, so what comes to mind and I'm, Don, I don't know if this answers your question but just how agile we had to yeah. be. And that gives, like, that is what gives me hope. That is what inspires me every day. Cause I'm like, if we did that, oh, we can do anything. We can set a new strategic plan. We can think about how to exponentially increase the number of students we're serving. We could do that. Yeah. Not that that's not hard, but this, like nothing will be like this. Uh, that resonates with me so much. I mean, I, you know, I run the state of Indiana pitch competition and this year we had curriculum and yep. we were like, man, no one's going to take it. And, and uh, it, it, strange things happened. And, and, and just in a lot of cases, the people that came to us were at, at, at the right time, at the right place. Um, mm-hmm. While there were a lot of significant reasons why people couldn't access it, uh, the ones that wanted to did. And, wow. you know, mind you, we survived. Matter of fact, we did better than the year before, which I'm still shocked by. But mm-hmm. like you, it proved that we could get through it. And we were ready, you know, <laughs> Midwestern speak, not sounding like a Cubs fan, but wait till next year. You know, I mean, like th- this whole thing of like, man, we survived. That's so crazy. next year, man, we're going to kill it. So, yes, uh, that, that, that resonates with me a ton. Jamal, you're about ready to say something? Yeah, so I have I have a I have a question for you, and I always like to ask our guests a question similar to this: What do you enjoy most about what you do? Wow, there's so many things. I lo- like this is absolutely my dream job. So as you can imagine, Jamal, there's like fifty eleven things that I love about. Um, 50, 11, at least 50, 11, maybe 50, 15. I don't know. Um, what I love most. The two things that come to mind, um, one is the learning. I think the best leaders listen, um, and they're, they're, they listen deeply enough to be changed by what they hear. And even the most confident of leaders, I learn so much every single day from the people that I'm surrounded by. Our AmeriCorps members who give a year of service, uh, get a living stipend that's, you know, and, and give a year over 1700 hours of service. Um, they're, they're the front, they're our frontline folks in our schools. So I learned so much from them. I learned so much from my leadership team. I learned so much from people who've been here a lot longer than I have. I learned from people who've been here for a day, but just the learning I think is huge. And then I think the other thing that I love about it, um, I, I think if you are in this work, if you're in education, there is a bit of the, like you clearly have to be altruistic, right? And you have to believe, you have to have hope. You have to be inspired by children and all of those things. Uh-huh. And in addition, I think there's sometimes a little bit of fear. And, you know, in, in my head, it's like, you know, if it weren't for vaccines and all that stuff, it's like, what, what's next year going to look like? What if our volunteers can't come into the school? You know, what if we don't 
triple in size in X amount of years. What if we don't? I mean, I think the my passion to move forward and to grow um, this organization is much stronger and deeper than the fear that I have. But don't, I mean, don't we tell, like kids are scared. Aren't they scared to try things? And we tell them to keep trying. I think, I just feel like as adults, we sometimes forget the very, um, the very skills that got us to where we are, the resilience, like our ability to overcome challenges. And I'm just reminded by that. I'm reminded by that when I watch videos and hear from AmeriCorps members talking about our students and their ability to read and figure out hard words and get excited about reading when they versus when they first came into the organization and hated it. So that, and then just last, maybe the, I know you said one thing and I'm saying three and you don't have to use all, all of these, but um, I was on your website earlier and I was listening to some of y'all's podcasts. Like I listened to the very first one that was like a podcast after you all had already been having your conversations and um, and then went just was on your website and just reading. And I was so taken aback and love so much how you all talk about strategic it was like strategic networks or something, but that like something about strategic networks being the key to success or, and I'm, if I'm, if I am not quite getting the words right, I hope you are picking perfect. up what You're I have perfect. down. Yeah. But I, I think that's also what I love about this work. Like to do this work well, you have to have strategic networks. And I think you caught it down, like not, not having the wedding talk, like, oh yeah, let's get up, but never do that. But like the, even just how both of you came together, right? Like, I think there is beauty in that. And, and similarly with the relationships with the school, these are real relationships. The, the relationships between the tutors and students, they're real relationships. And I think doing that during this time where we're not, you know, we're not able to see one another in person, at least the majority of the country is still isn't, you know, I think these connections are just so important. So I'm inspired by that and that those type of strategic relationships, networks, um, I think also just really inspire me. Mm. So I'm gonna add something. At the, at the very beginning of the episode, I said that in that Venn diagram, you know, that you're in the education sector. Uh, clearly you're talking about leadership. You're on the entrepreneurship spectrum. And, and that other, if we make this a Venn diagram of four overlapping things, what I also talked to you, you talked about today was, um, was identity and, and, and understanding um, you're right, not being performative, but doing work uh, to make people's lives better. Uh, yes. and, and, and again, not, not for performative. Um, I, I, I also loved hearing uh, you reflect on this year and the challenges um, and maybe I have several, Jamal and I, we like several, we, we, we quote several things, but it just reminded me of Robert Frost. Mm. The only way out is through. And for so many organizations and for so many teachers and for so many students and for so many things that this year was rough, the only mindset to have was the only way out is through. Yes. Um, and so when, when that journey is on display, Mm -hmm. Um, it, it, it's, it's one of the reasons why we had, this is one of the reasons why we call it crucial conversations because Jamal and I love hearing from people like you. We love having these crucial conversations because, uh, there's, there's a lot of anger. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a lot of jealousy. There's a lot of blame. There's a lot of this, there's like, but there's also a lot of positive. That's right. And, and boy, when you talk about the strategic networks, one of the things that I just love is my relationships with people that are like, they, they understand it. They acknowledge some of the things out there that justifiably can people complaining about, mm -hmm. but they're like, Hey man, Hey baby, what you got? 
what what are we going to do to make things better? And and I value the fact that Jamal and I get each other up every morning, except for this morning. Sorry, Jamal. I really wasn't feeling well. I <laughs> uh, but but keeping those things and, and keeping that mindset and, and wanting to move forward and, and be positive. Jamal, man, uh, wrap us up. You got any Listen, last I, thoughts, my man? No, I just I just echoing the same thing. That, that you just said, Don, I, I feel I feel better about life after having this conversation with you. Uh, and uh, I know that other people will. Uh, I'm inspired to to move forward um, after hearing you speak today. So I know that you've been a blessing to me and I know that you'll be a blessing to others. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate you both. This was such a joy. And yeah, just appreciate the opportunity. Thank you both for everything that you're doing together and in Florida, Indiana, and your respective communities. But thanks. Thank, just thanks for the opportunity. Adiola brought the heat, Jamal. I, I thought, like, yeah. take, we don't normally get on people that can out talk us, but man, Adiola brought it. <laughs> he brought it. I love this. It. Is true. My homework. I was like, oh, I, they're really about this. Okay. How the fact this? that you went back several episodes, just like uh, Jamal, were you smiling to the microphone? Because I was like, well, that's just nice. The whole time, the whole time when she went back to the first episode and she was like, we have been doing some episodes before. I was like, oh, yeah, it's just their homework. <laughs> no, that was that, I, I really enjoyed that one, like really, really enjoyed. It. I was like, oh, OK. I just yeah, I think it's beautiful. I think what y'all are doing is incredible. And I'm just I, I, I feel lucky to be part of history and be part of um, this beautiful thing called a podcast. It's crucial conversations that y'all have um, that you're that you're putting on together. This is great.